Good morning. You can be opening with me as we'll begin here to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. This will be like last week. We'll be looking at a number of different passages, so get ready to be turning uh, together. But 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we will begin. Uh, last week and this week, we are engaged in something unusual. Uh, we have for a long time now been walking through John's gospel, and we have paused from that for these weeks. In fact, we won't be back in John next week either. July will come, and then we'll return to, to, uh, our, to our, our, our moving through the Gospel of John. But the reason we've made this, this, uh, this pause is in order for us to think together about, about something, really about two things and the way that they relate to one another. Two things that are often misunderstood, easy to misunderstand, uh, things that require careful thinking, and those are the dual concepts of baptism as the sign of the new covenant and church membership, what it is to belong to the covenant community. Last week we focused especially on the baptism element, and this morning will be the second. Um, and we're going to approach it in reverse order to the way we did that last week. Last week we started with the straight question, what is baptism? And we defined it immediately and then we walked through that definition, looking to the scriptures. We will reverse that a bit this morning. Instead of starting with the question, what is church membership? Instead, we will begin by walking through the picture that we find in the New Testament of how God has commanded us to live the new life that he has granted us by faith when he saved us in his son. What does that picture look like as it's held out to us on the pages of scripture? And I'll tell you right now, where it will lead us is to the general concept of body life. A life not just as a solo Christian, but life as a part of what the New Testament calls the body of Christ. So we'll look at that picture, and then we'll use what we see there to spell out a definition of church membership. And then after that, we'll do something yet further. We have a lot to do together this morning. Um, I mentioned this last week, the occasion that brings all of this up has to do with particular questions that the elders have been thinking about and studying together. Uh, namely, this one, is there any sense in which baptism is related to the biblical concept of membership in the covenant community? What is that connection if there is one? And so we'll look at that question in general, but also by looking particularly at the situation of children who have come to faith and who have been baptized. Because that's really the place where there are a number of particular questions and different ways that individual local churches handle the question. So we'll look at all of those things this morning. Uh, to begin, we'll read 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And you can remain open to that passage as well. That's the first place that we'll look together. The question that we start with is, is this one. How has God described to us his chosen people in their lives on this earth? How has he described our new life in Christ? We can think of descriptions. We can think of commands that are given to us and the picture that that creates for us. As we're trying to develop that mental image in our minds, I would have us consider four points. It could be, I think, many others, but these are directly relevant to what we're going to see this morning. The first point we need to notice is that when we find this picture in Scripture, what we find is that God saves individuals, but he does so as part of a great building project. It's a good way to describe the picture because of the fact that he uses building imagery in the New Testament. He saves individuals, but as he saves us, he saves us as a part of a great building project. And we see it in several places, but first is the text that you have open there, 1 Peter 2. Notice a couple of things that are said in what we just read together. Look at verse 5. He speaks of us and he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. It came up this morning in the adult Sunday school class here, the fact that so, so much of the New Testament consists of letters written to churches, written to bodies of believers together. And so many of the commands that are given in those contexts only make sense within a corporate family body context. We see it here again in verse 9. How does he speak of us? He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's see how Paul describes this same reality, but he makes not exactly the same point. 1 Corinthians 12, I'll read verses 12 to 20. And again, notice what, what they're giving us is they're giving us descriptions of what God is doing in saving and bringing salvation to the earth. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul writes, For just as the body is one 
and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. Notice the analogy he's using is that of our physical bodies. I have many members, fingers, ankles, a nose. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. He says, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? Aren't these fantastic points that he's making about our usefulness in our diversity together? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. It's not just a beautiful picture. We're finding in this how God's intentions on earth are being realized. They are being realized as we are rescued from our sin, given new hearts, given spiritual gifts, and placed within a community wherein we play a particular role that is not the role of everyone else, with our strengths that others do not have and our weaknesses that others do not have. As we find that happening, we find the very picture that God has intended and ordained as salvation is coming to this earth. God saves us individually, but he does so as a part of something bigger than ourselves. He does it as a part of a building project. That's the first thing for us to see. It leads us to the second of these four pieces of this picture. The second is that his commands about how that building project will appear place a heavy emphasis on what we call one another-ing. If you can put it into a, a form like that. There's something like 50 commands in Scripture that have to do with something to one another, that cannot be obeyed by myself to myself. They require corporate activity. Can I give you just a small survey of those commands? And then let's think about them together. You don't have to turn to these. Listen to these. Just be reminded of some of the things that you as a child of God are commanded to obey. Romans chapter 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans chapter 12, again, live in harmony with one another. Ephesians 4, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Romans 15, instruct one another. Romans 16, greet one another. Galatians 5, serve one another in love. Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens. Now you stand back from those, and of course we could go on for a long time, but you stand back even from the ones that we just read, and you recognize you can't do those things to all believers everywhere, can you? You can't serve every believer that there is on the planet. You can't carry the burdens of every believer that, that is living today. You can't be devoted to them. You can't live in harmony with them because you're not living with them at all. You'll never know their name. You'll never come into contact. You can't do those things to all believers everywhere. 
even as you can't do them to yourself. They are commands that only make any sense under the assumption that groups of, of individual believers are choosing to gather and live their lives together. It's the only condition in which the commands make any sense to be given. It's the second piece of the, of the image, the picture that we're seeking to see. The third, then, has to do with the giftings that God's given us. Not unexpectedly, then, if this is the picture he's intending, what we find is that our spiritual gifts that he gives to us when we come to faith in Christ are not given for self-use. We find this in 1 Corinthians 12. Starting in verse 4, Paul writes, Now there are, a vari- there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now listen to verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. That implies that there is a group that we hold in common. And it, imply, it doesn't imply, it directly states that the gift is intended for the blessing of that group. For the blessing of something beyond myself. So it's not just the picture that he paints and that he tells us to look for and to expect. It's also conducive to the very way he has gifted us. According to our gifts. Fourth piece of this picture. as we're just Again, remember, we're just starting by trying to get a sense of the picture that the New Testament gives us of life. In Christ. And the fourth we could describe this way. We've talked about this building project. What the Bible calls these building projects on earth that give off the look that he has described and commanded. What the Bible calls them is the church. Or since we're talking in reference to what is seen on earth, we would have to say, wouldn't we, local churches. That's what the Bible calls this appearance of this picture that God has intended and has equipped us for. It's a restorative work of God on earth. It's an inbreaking of the age to come into the present age that actually shows up in space and time in real individuals. And which, by definition, has to be exhibited visually in a community. That's what local churches are. Now, of course, I'm talking, I hope you understand, I'm talking about true churches just because a group gathers and chooses to call themselves a church does not make them a legitimate part of this, does it? I don't use that phrase to refer to any group of people who call themselves a church. But any place on earth where the universal church, or we sometimes say the invisible church, or we say the new covenant community on earth, any place on earth where that community finds true expression in time and place, what is that thing? That's a local church. Remember what we said last week about baptism. This is where this begins to come into the discussion. We said that baptism is the visible sign God has given us of the new covenant. In fact, more particularly, the sign of the new covenant community. The new covenant community is a spiritual reality but it's one that is displayed physically on earth. And the Lord of the church has told us how it is supposed to display itself. So that those people whom he has saved to himself, whom he has brought into the body of Christ, who are marked off 
identified visibly by receiving the sign of that covenant, baptism. They make that membership manifest by living their lives within the community context that we've been describing this morning. This is what their life reflects. Now we're ready then to think more directly about the question, what is church membership? And what I would do to start here is I would offer you two definitions. One is longer than the second, but maybe each of them are helpful in their own ways. So here's two definitions I would offer for church membership. First one is the longer. Church membership is the formal commitment of individual Christians freely choosing to covenant together in order to live like Christ has commanded them to live in this world. The second definition is similar, but not exactly the same. Church membership is where an individual declares which group of believers he or she is going to participate with in submitting to Christ's commands. What we found this morning is this, I can't submit to all of Christ's commands if I am living life by myself all the time. I cannot, I cannot be obedient without engaging with other believers. Church membership is where that individual declares which group of believers that he or she is going to participate with meaningfully. Now, maybe that's a helpful starting point, but we need to say quite a bit more about this. Namely, because what this might sound like so far, it might sound like nothing more than a defense of the notion that Christians should go to church. And Christians should certainly go to church. I think most most, certainly most of us in here, I hope, understand that, that need fairly, uh, fairly well. It is amazing to hear statistics of self-professing Christians in this country who never go to church at all. I cannot understand the, uh, the, the thought process there for the, how they're defining themselves in these ways. Uh, but generally, in our context, that notion that we should go to church and even that we should participate meaningfully in a church is fairly natural. Usually, that's not where the question comes in. Usually, the question that arises in our minds when we're thinking about this really more boils down to the question of the formality of church membership, the need for formality, the need for some kind of a public uh, process, the ceremony, perhaps, of this kind of thing. It's, it's there in our time, that sort of, of institutional appearance is a thing that causes many to scratch their heads and say, why do we need this? What is the significance of formal membership in a church? Maybe that's a better way to ask the question. Why can't we just say, as some churches do, as churches that we've been a part of in our past have done, why can't we just say that anyone who goes to this church on a regular basis is part of this church? In other words, why should church membership involve any formal process and commitment? And it's important for us to say that that is a good question. And I would say there's a sense in which a person asking that question has a point to some degree. If you are here and this is your church, you feel committed to us, uh, you're, you serve in our congregation, you pray for us, there is certainly truth in saying that in a very real sense, you're a part of this church. You're a part of this church family. We want to pray for you. We ask you to pray for us. When we even say the word us, 
even if though you're not a formal member here, there's a sense in which we have you in mind as a part of that word, us. We can acknowledge the existence of Christian relationships there and love and, com- and individual commitment. So that needs to be acknowledged. That's not nothing. That is significant. But I would suggest to you, this is where the homework that we've been doing up to now is so important. Local church membership needs to be a formal, public, recognized reality because the local church is the new covenant community. We are a community united together by covenant. People who have developed an un an unspoken habit of getting together regularly that they enjoy, are not in covenant together. They are not in a covenant relationship. And the fact that in that setting, in their own hearts and intentions, they might even feel very committed to that group of people and to its cause, as wonderful as that is, doesn't change the fact that they are not united in a covenant relationship. Public promises, vows, are at the heart of what a covenant is definitionally. And so you might see my point when I say that the question that we're talking about, if I've decided that I'm committed, why is there a need for a formal commitment? My suggestion to you is that that question is actually the question, is there any value to covenants? What's the need for, for any covenants? That's really the question that is being asked. It's not a bad question. It's a good question but we need to understand the nature of what we're really wrestling with. I was recently in the audience um, excuse me, at a public event where someone was speaking on the topic of sexual purity, and she laid out the biblical case for sexual activity belonging to the specific context of a man and woman who had entered the covenant of marriage. It was very well done. Um, and afterward, there was a Q&A time. And a young woman um, raised her hand and asked the question. She said, do you, do you think God really cares about, about the, the ceremony of what you're talking about? Doesn't it really, all that matters is that those two people are truly committed to each other and have told each other that they're truly committed? Isn't that all that really matters to God? And I so appreciated the answer that she gave. She, she proceeded to spell out very gently, but very, uh, and just a, she did a great job. She spelled out that God requires the making of those vows, which, by the way, remember, are not just with one another in this covenant, but are with God, for the very reason that it creates an, an obligation external to those two individuals. It binds them together in this covenant to which they are now accountable to a degree that goes beyond their internal feeling of commitment. There's now a known standard that that commitment has to attain to. And anyone who's married in here knows that the very fact of that is a big part of what further strengthens and protects their union beyond what it would be if they just told each other they were committed to each other. We have to reflect on this question in order to appreciate what God has really given us by giving us covenantal relationships in our lives. What he's given us by calling us to a relationship of covenant in his people in space and time is he is guarding us, even guarding us from ourselves. 
And every believer in here knows we need to be guarded from ourselves many times in many seasons, don't we? He guards us by forming this covenant community and calling its members to a commitment that has an accountability to it. It has obligation to it. We are required to weave our lives together with other people, other sinners no less. None of that is required in a voluntary, optional uh, collaboration of individuals with no promises having been made. This is exactly what we are brought into when we come into a covenant relationship. My friends, we know, don't we, our commitments need an accountability that goes beyond our own feelings of commitment. And when we enter such things, it requires of us and it grows in us. Things like trust, humility, and a willingness to accountability in my life. My friends, we should appreciate how beneficial this plan of God is for everyone involved. Because being a part of a community always entails both obligations, and benefits. But when the parameters of a community are undefined, nobody is quite sure what they should be doing. What role they can or should be living out? Is it my place? Am I overstepping? No one is sure what they're supposed to do in these relationships with one another. In fact, such an undefined situation is really very conducive to the consumeristic kind of outlook that is so common today toward church, isn't it? Views church as a place that you go to get something rather than as a family to which you belong and are committed and have a part to play and are needed. And in a setting like that, if nobody is sure what they're supposed to be doing, there are really only two possible outcomes for people. You're either going to grow lax and inactive or you're going to live in a constant state of guilt, wondering if there's something more, something else that you should be doing. For all of these reasons, we can see God's intentions that this community be a visible manifestation of the covenantal realities into which he has saved all of us. Now, we should say one more thing about church membership before we turn to the third uh, piece of of our consideration this morning before we bring in baptism and think about how that relates to all this. So here's the last question I would ask regarding the specific topic of church membership. And we're talking about formal membership in a local church. When might a believer live for a season outside of membership in a local church? There are circumstances where it makes sense for that to be the case in a person's life. I've thought of a few. There may be some others. Number one, and I start with this one because we find it in the New Testament. We find it in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who was baptized and and in this particular location. What we find, I think, in that example is this. If a believer is in a missionary frontier situation where there is yet no local church, then that would by necessity be a time in a Christian's life in which they were not connected in a, a, a committed relationship to a local body. You can tell that's not ideal, can you? But necessity sometimes requires these things. Another possible circumstance, if if a situation in life has led to the need to withdraw membership from a church, and so that person is in a time of searching for a faithful local church, and that search includes 
even once you think you have found one, taking time to get to know that church, know its people, know how they handle the scriptures, how they apply the scriptures. If membership is important, it's not something to be entered into lightly, is it? And so it makes perfect sense that there would be a season like that in the life of a believer. Uh, A third scenario, this one I think is usually less likely, but it's not impossible. Uh, If a believer has found themselves in a place and determined, let's say for example, determined that there's only one healthy local church in their range, but doctrinal differences preclude them from joining that church. So it may be that a church has very strict doctrinal requirements about what what, where your conscience must land in a number of issues if you're going to be a member of that church and that some of those fall in realms of differences you have with that leadership so that it makes you actually ineligible for membership. Um, and yet in this hypothetical situation, there just is not another healthy church in your reach. In a situation like that, if, I mean, depending on the issue, if your conscience allows you to be a part of that church, That could be another situation that might require that. You you would still seek to be meaningfully engaged in body life and and in loving others and and serving, uh, but you would have to do so outside of a context of of actual commitment to that body. That's a possibility. Personally, I think that's a good example of why we think it's important to walk a balance in what is required doctrinal belief for individual Christians to become a member here there's an extent to which that can become inappropriate very quickly to require such alignment when there's a number of third-tier issues and things that we have much freedom to differ on. Anyway, those are some circumstances that could happen. But here's the point, and it leads us well, I think, into the final area we're going to consider this morning. Those situations that I just described, can you tell, those are exceptions. They're not normal situations uh, in terms of long-term in a believer's life. And even if they are necessary at times, they do in fact amount to something that is detrimental to that believer in that time. Something is lost. There are privileges of commitment, of closeness. There's trust that comes with, with commitment to one another through promises Uh, Often, some opportunities to serve are diminished or held that are lost to that person. And if that's a born-again believer, then that's a loss to that congregation, isn't it? Because God has gifted that person for service that's needed and that is being kept. So it's important, I think, that we recognize that though those situations can happen, they're, they're they're, they're not normative, and there is a cost to that kind of a situation. Again, doesn't mean it's not necessary or even right at times, but we just have to understand it for what it is. Now, let's bring into this then the third and final area of our thought this morning, which is the way that baptism might come into this whole question. Baptism and membership. Um, And much of this will apply to to any case of adult conversion and adult baptism as well. Uh, But we're going to think about some particulars regarding the question of children. And so, 17 years old and younger in here, don't plug your ears, but we're going to be talking about you right in front of you for a few minutes, all right? Uh, I'm sure you've already been paying close attention. Just keep that up. This, is, this, this might interest you. 
Um, I want us to think about some ways that different churches have answered that question. Uh, Our conviction here is that when one of the children in our church, in a family in our church, comes and asks to be baptized and goes through the process of meeting with with their pastors, uh, credibly demonstrates not just saving faith, but a certain level of maturity to understand what God has done and to articulate what God has done. Our position here is that when that happens and we baptize a child, the conviction is that that child ought not be baptized into homelessness. That's how it's been described sometimes. You don't affirm their faith, declare them a a fellow child of God and a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, and then fail to live out what you're saying with the baptism itself, which is that you belong to the new covenant community. No, the the church that baptizes them ought also to welcome them into their community as one of them. So that in short, baptism ought to be aligned with membership in the local church. Now, as I said, there have been a number of other ways, other nuances to answering the question of how we live that out in a local church. Um, It continues to be a a subject of much thought and wrestling today. And I'm going to give you... three main um, alternatives, three other approaches that are not exactly like ours. But before I give any of them, I just want to draw your attention to something. Notice as we go through them that none of them separate a person's baptism from from an acknowledgement of their formally belonging to the church. None of these three separate those two out. The first one I'll give you would be the example of our pedo-baptist brothers, those believers who practice infant baptism. You can already tell as we come to that group that there's a number of significant differences uh, between us and them. But interestingly, the difference stems not so much from differences about the things we talked about this morning, as much as differences about the conviction of what baptism is meant to signify. They believe that the sign of baptism points not to what we saw last week, not to the realization, the realization of God's promise in a person's life, but rather that it points simply to the promise itself. And they make the statement, membership in the New Covenant community is for believers and their children. They, they believe, they recognize a pattern of that that comes into the New Testament. And so they baptize their babies when, when at least one of the parents is a believer. Again, we do not agree with that, do we? But notice that as they do that, that infant is brought into their covenant community. Because again, for them, membership in the new covenant community is for believers and their children. And that's why they baptize them, because of this link between baptism and entrance into the covenant community. So that's one way that some churches approach this. Another approach that some churches have taken it's certainly the one that, uh, well, I won't say that. Um, another approach that some have taken, and it's, it, it's fairly common in our time today, has been actually, interestingly, to get very near to that first one in the way they handle believer's baptism. So there are churches that practice believer's baptism. Only a believer should enter the waters of baptism. And yet the way they conduct it winds up being very similar to an infant baptism situation. So that when the 
and I'm just, I'm not thinking of a particular example, you understand. When, when the two and a half year old learns how to say phrases and is taught to say the phrase, I love Jesus, they are brought to the waters of baptism. And their parents sigh a great sigh of relief. And they might even get a cool t-shirt afterwards. I don't know. It depends on the context. Um, in other words, in a number of circumstances, children are baptized in a way that trivializes the very sober realities and profession that is being made. I mean, think of what's being proclaimed as we affirm one in baptism, admitting oneself to have been a sinner, estranged from God, and worthy of punishment, and being one now who is called to die to myself, to take up my cross and follow him. Those are certainly things that I will understand better at age 30 than I did at age 10. But none of that's going on in any form in the minds of some who are young enough. Uh, And those things are not part of, therefore, the teaching, preparation, questioning that precedes baptism. All that was required was the right answer to the question. Do you love Jesus? Now, what's good about, well, the place where, where there would be some alignment is usually in that context, once that child is baptized for the rest of their life, how are they considered? They're a member of the church. They still have a tie there. Um, we've said some of this already. The problem is not only that this rejects any serious conception of conversion, but also, and I say this because of where we'll go in a few minutes, another problem with that is that it fails to take into any account what we know children are. Every young child growing up in a Christian home will answer yes to that question, every one of them. Another answer has never even occurred to them. And yet they've had no inkling whatsoever of the world's competing pull on their affections. The notion of allegiance itself has never been considered. The point is that because of the reality of what childhood is, especially young childhood, by its nature, care ought to be taken to ensure a certain ability to demonstrate and articulate what God has done before the covenant sign of baptism is given. It's just a reasonable guard in light of what we know children are like. No offense, you kiddos under the age of 17. We're going to keep talking about you, though, so be ready for that. Now, as I said, we do agree with that second approach that the Lord saves children. All the time the Lord is saving Even young children, the Lord is powerful to save, he's faithful to do so, and quite often that's exactly what he does. What we're saying here is that it's our responsibility to take the sign of the covenant seriously and to require an age-appropriate and yet credible profession of faith. Now, I told you there were three approaches I was going to describe. That was the second. Here's the third. This one is also not ours in a way. There are ways that we differ from from this one. This would be an approach that takes the baptism membership connection very seriously and is very sensitive to the dangers in that second path that we were just talking about, understands how likely it is that that creates false professions of faith and therefore false assurance of salvation, 
And so what this approach does is it chooses to baptize no one under the age of 18. It just sets the limit of any baptisms, and therefore anything that would go with it, uh, the sharing at the Lord's Supper, things like this, it sets the limit at the age of 18. Some churches take that approach. Some churches that I generally appreciate tremendously and that have been beneficial to us. Um, I'll give you an example. One church I'll mention by name because you might know the name uh, of the church or the pastor. Mark Dever's church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., takes that approach. Um, they're the ones largely responsible for the Nine Marks organization. They are a godly, healthy church, and we have been directly blessed by them. Um, and what I want to do is read you a portion of their explanation for that policy. Back in 2004, they, they uh, made that change and they wrote a letter to their congregation. It's on their website. You can see all of it. But can I just read a bit of it to you here? Because this is them explaining their thought process there. They wrote this. They said, <clears throat> they said, we believe that the normal age of baptism should be when the credibility of one's conversion becomes naturally evident to the church community. This would normally be when the child has matured and is beginning to live more self-consciously as an individual, making their own choices, having left the God-given intended... Um, let me reemphasize that, that's important having left the God-given, intended, childlike dependence on their parents, having left that for the God-given, intended, mature wisdom which marks one who has felt the tug of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but has decided despite these allurements to follow Christ. The kind of maturity that we feel it is wise to expect is the maturity that would allow the son or daughter to deal directly with the church as a whole and not fundamentally to be under their parents' authority. As they assume adult responsibilities, sometimes in late high school with driving, employment, non-Christian friends, voting, legality of marriage, then part of this, we would think, would be to declare publicly their allegiance to Christ by baptism. I hope you can hear uh, how, how thoughtfully they have arrived at that position and the reasoning behind that decision. I hope you can also hear that they're using words like wise. Uh, they are in no way suggesting that this is how every church should do it. This is how they have decided is the wisest way to handle these guardrails. And I, for my part, I think there's much in what they're saying there that is worthy of, of being pondered. Where we would differ is the decision to force that line to be at age 18 or older. We, it's our conviction that there are appropriate ages at which children can both understand and demonstrate independence in embracing Christ as their Savior, not because their parents have said so, but because they truly believe that though they are guilty before God, that they will find mercy and forgiveness by the blood of Christ. And if there is a way for that to be demonstrated even in childhood years, then that work of God should be acknowledged. His spiritual gifts to them should be exercised and practiced and used to bless God's people. And that child should experience the protection that the body of Christ offers. 
And that really is, is uh, um, leading to just an articulation of what our own policy as a church is regarding these, these matters. We would want to say to all of our children in this room, put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and do it today. Excuse me. It's uh, it, it's a uh, it's a stark reality in Scripture that we usually say to each other. It's a different thing to say it to our children, but it's equally true for them, right? That we are not promised tomorrow. Sorry. And so this is what we, what we urge all of our kids toward. See him, know who he is, believe what he said, trust in him. And when they do that, when they profess faith in Christ, what we do in response is we celebrate that profession. We affirm it. We encourage it. And we watch them as we are training and raising them. We watch them. We watch God bring them into more and more understanding and maturity and ability to articulate. And as they make that faith public and request baptism at an age when they're able to truly comprehend not just God's work in them, but what God's call on them is in the body of Christ. As that happens in the life of a child, and we think that we can discern it, we find it appropriate to begin a process of discipleship, preparing them for baptism. And when they're baptized, we do not merely declare them members of the universal church. We bring them into fellowship and accountability in our church family. We pursue both at once in those kinds of situations where baptism is being requested, both for children and for adults, by the way, baptism and membership for the very reason of the relationship that we've seen in this little series. That to be baptized is to take onto yourself the sign of the new covenant community. And since the local church is that new covenant community in flesh and blood, it makes no sense at all to be left out of the visible community after having been given the sign of that community. It makes no sense. It's talking to them out of both sides of our mouth. And so they are part of us. And yet they are still children among us, aren't they? And so we believe it would be not only appropriate, but also in accordance with biblical wisdom to consider them as members, but as members under age, under the authority of their parents, and therefore not having equal authority to conduct church business. We're talking about voting in church votes. Voting rights come to that child when they reach 18 years of age. And it is very true that the marker 18 years of age is for our society, largely arbitrary, isn't it? Culture-specific. Every culture has always had to determine when to consider someone to transition into adulthood. There's no getting around it, and there's nothing wrong with it either. And so we simply use our own culture's designated age to mark the transition in this case as well. Um, I do want to suggest to you that this distinction that we're making, I'm thinking of that voting thing, uh, between children and adults, 
in the exercise of community, I want to suggest that that is a proper inference from Scripture. And let me tell you where I'm getting that from. Can I read you three passages? Just listen to these and ask yourself, how am I being told to think about the difference between a child and a grown-up? Kids, this is where you can plug your ears if you want to. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, a command. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Do not be children in your thinking. Ephesians 4.14, Paul says that God has gifted the church with teachers for this reason, quote, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Friends, if this is the way our childhood is spoken of, it seems a very natural conclusion that God is not calling us to give to the children of our community an authoritative decision-making role in the function and business of the church. And so for these reasons, members under the age of 18 do not participate in church business decisions. But that's okay, because the reality is that church membership is weighty enough even without those things, isn't it? And the fact that baptism stands as the initiation into that significant and weighty part of our Christian lives ought to further encourage us, and maybe I'm speaking especially to parents of children here, it ought to further encourage parents not to feel themselves to be in a hurry when the subject of baptism comes up at home. Childhood is a time of preparation and learning and growth. There's no reason to be in a hurry. And a profession of faith is something to be celebrated and nurtured, but it is not something that should lead a parent to feel pressured or hurried to move toward baptism. Instead, we want to ask them to trust us as those whom God has given to them to lead them and guide them and to know what they're ready for and when. We want to be diligent to nurture our kids, to demonstrate to them the goodness of God, the truth of his word, the power of his word in our lives. And when parents who know that child begin to think, not just that salvation has come to that child, but that they have grown to a place where they understand and can articulate what it means to belong to the people of God, to have chosen Christ and his people over the world. When that begins to be the consideration, that's when it's time to go to pastors and say, hey, I have something I want to talk to you about. I want to ask you about. We've looked at quite a bit this morning. Uh, we remembered that salvation is not described to us in purely individualistic terms. We're told that we're saved into a body, into a family. We reflected on the way that the Bible's commands can be grouped, uh, what they sound like, and how inescapable, how essential a life lived with a people is who come to know me. And who I come to know, how essential that is to living an obedient Christian life. And then we put those two things together and define church membership as simply declaring which group of God's children I'm going to be joined to in this way. 
we remembered that the element of commitment vows, promises, is what makes this a covenant, as opposed to a convenient place where people that I enjoy happen to be on occasion. So I'll show up too. And we noted that while there are reasonable circumstances that can lead a believer into a situation of not being joined to a local church, sometimes even a long-term situation, we saw that we should view those as exceptions that prove the rule. And then finally, we've applied that to baptism, and specifically the baptism of children. And we learned why we're persuaded here that we ought to welcome any child who is baptized into our church family formally and commit ourselves to them. And some of those points are articulated and even expanded a bit in written form in a policy paper that the elders completed this year. That's available for anyone who's interested to read it. Just ask. Uh, but let me end this morning by addressing those kiddos of you, 17 and under, yeah, 18. Uh, I want to say a few things right to you. I don't know why, but that's sometimes hard for me to do. I feel like it's a big deal. Bear with me. Um, let me apologize that we've been talking about you right in front of you for a lot of the time this morning. guys. I hope you have been listening. I hope what we've said is creating some questions in your mind. Um, nothing would please me more than getting to sit down with you and talk through those things if you have questions as thoughts are arising. So know that, and I mean that. Um, but I want to use this opportunity to think with you. For just a minute, let's think about what we've said, but let's think about the gospel in relationship to this. Um, first of all, since you're sitting here, I can say something to you. God has been incredibly kind to you in some very important ways. Do you realize that? He has put you in a place with a family and with other families around you too who love you. But much more important than that, he has allowed you to grow up surrounded by people who love him, who know him, love him. And I suspect as a result of that, you've been learning things. You've been learning about God's goodness to us in his son and our need for his saving grace. You guys spend a lot of ages in here. It's incredible. I mean, like super newborns and 17 and three quarters, and then, of course, it keeps going. Um, so there's a lot of, of spectrum among you kids in here in terms of understanding. But I want to say this, just because of things I have seen in other kids in other settings, for all the blessings of growing up in a Christian setting, I think that there's one struggle that is often common for you as you've grown up hearing the realities of the Christian faith and of what God has done in Christ. Because it's all you've known to that degree, it can sometimes be very confusing to think about a question of, am I a Christian? Well, I, I, what does the answer no mean? I, I don't, so what does the answer yes mean? That can be a confusing place to be. And I would just tell you, to be thinking about a couple of things. Here's one. Uh, there's not a single person in this room, no matter who their parents were or what kind of family they grew up in, 
who was born into this world in a right relationship to God. We're not just sinners because of bad things we wind up doing. What does Ephesians 3, 2 tell us? It tells us by, from our birth, it says that God is angry with us. And it tells us why there. It's because of our very nature. It says we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every human who is born comes into this world not in a right relationship with God. And that means that for every single Christian in this room, there came a point in time when God showed us, not just that we're not perfect, but that we really are guilty in God's sight. That as I stand before him on my own, I need forgiveness. Not sin needs to be forgiven. I need forgiveness. It is true that Jesus came to to forgive sin and to save sinners, and that on the cross he dealt with the sins of his people once for all. But here's what I'm saying to you. That work of Jesus is not applied to us until we come to God and pray and confess that we are sinners and ask for rescue by the work of his Son. An easy way to say that is before we find forgiveness, we have to ask for forgiveness. That's how forgiveness functions. And so here's what I'm asking you to think about. Have you prayed to God about yourself? I don't mean prayed in general, but spoken to God about the subject of you. Have you told him that you have come to see, he has shown you that you are a sinner, you have broken his laws. He would be right to punish you. Have you told him that you've come to believe what he has promised, that he really will forgive and love you forever as you trust completely in his son to save you? I mean, his work in your place, you put his work on like clothing so that God will see Christ as he looks at you. Have you told God that you have come to understand that? And have you asked him to forgive you because of what Jesus has done? Guys, that's an actual conversation I'm talking about that you need to have with God about yourself. If you have not done that, if you have not asked for forgiveness out of a genuine awareness of guilt in the name of Christ, you have not been forgiven. And so what you have to do is you have to decide whether or not you actually believe those things. Has God opened your eyes to see that those things are in fact true of you? And if he has, and if you do see them, well, then now you know what you need to do next, don't you? You need to come to him in humility and pray about yourself and ask God to forgive as he has promised to do in Christ. And friends, if if he has shown you those things about yourself and about himself, kiddos, and you do trust him enough to bank your safety on Jesus alone for salvation, and you have come to him and asked him to save you, to forgive you, to make you his, then you should be thinking of yourself as a Christian. Because it's the realities behind that confession that define the Christian. You don't go forward from there feeling satisfied because you prayed that prayer that one time. You feel satisfied and safe because the things you've trusted in are true, and God doesn't lie or change his mind. 
Will you be safe forever because you prayed that prayer? No. You will be safe forever because Jesus has promised never to turn me away. He's promised to rescue me as I have come to him and therefore come to the Father. And he can be trusted. And at that point, you rest in him. You keep on choosing to trust him. You've trusted him today. Trust him again tomorrow. And look to the parents that God has given you to help guide you into maturity. To know how you're thinking. To know what you understand. To know what you're emotionally ready for. To know when you're ready to enter a commitment visibly to God's people. Not because you don't belong to the people of God, but because there comes a moment when it's time to join the public corporate proclamation of who we are in Christ. Trust your parents and pastors on the question of baptism. There is no big hurry for you. God is faithful, and he's growing you. So young people, I hope you can be thinking about those things going forward. This is very important stuff that we're talking about. One final word here, and then we'll be finished. The fact is that it's, it's a, a common hesitation to be hesitant about personal commitments. And so much of what we've heard and thought about this morning falls in the realm of personal commitments when we're thinking about church membership, doesn't it? That kind of accountability and responsibility can be uncomfortable and bring difficulty into our lives. There are risks involved in relationships, aren't there? But listen, without them, what do you have? Frankly, a society like ours, which has become more and more enamored with the idolatry of self, with individualism and personal autonomy, and has found itself in a place where our own national surgeon general declares an epidemic of loneliness. When, has we, when have we ever heard such a thing before? Is it, very, is, it, is it possible at all that there could be a connection? We lust after individual lack of commitment, lack of obligation, and we find ourselves empty. Maybe that's telling us something about how God has made us. My friends, that's not the life that God has saved his people into. Now let me close this in prayer, and then we will sing together. I need to make clear to you, we won't be dismissed right away. We have an important announcement to share with you. So after the singing, I'll come back up here and ask you to be seated again. Um, let me encourage you, though, right now, it is easy when there's an important announcement and it's after the sermon. It's easy to let that announcement push what we've heard in a sermon right out of our minds so that we leave thinking, talking about the announcement. Let me just urge you to try to do the hard thing to hold both of them at the same time as we go. Right? Um, what we've seen this morning about God's plans for his people is meaningful and significant. And I pray that the Lord uses it to shepherd his people. But let's close this section in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for what you did in Christ at the cross. And for what you have been doing through Christ ever since then. Expanding your kingdom on earth through the rescue of sinners. We ask you to continue to lead us as a church that we would present to each other and to the world around us the very picture of Christ's beauty and sufficiency. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you. Would you stand with